0: Um, I got a call about a week ago to to help start a new ministry, a pastor 's retreat center in wyoming and, and so the gentleman that 's starting that literally flew us out there sunday and, and we kind of met and, and dreamed and planned um, Sunday to Monday afternoon and then we came back monday night um, but i 'll tell you something when I, when I was standing in this this property, this ranch of Wyoming that 's in the beginning of the Rocky Mountains. It's very easy to feel very little, if you guys have ever been in a place like that. You just stand and see the awe and wonder that God has created. And, and I had this moment of just just kind of feeling small, but thankful that God is choosing, um, has chosen me to be a little part of this big plan. And, and, uh, and with God's grace and mercy, I'm sure um, that this place will be a blessing to a lot of people who are working in ministry and, and I'm just so excited to be a part of that. But, but it's, it's neat that God uses insignificant people to do His work. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please, um, please open them up to Acts chapter 9, verse 32. And I want to read the passage before we get into to learning a little bit about it. And if you would follow along, um, this, is, this is a story that we've probably all heard before, but it's, it's incredible. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 32... Luke writes this, he says, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints that lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they they turned to the Lord. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside And he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, raised her up. Then calling to the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. That's an incredible passage. And, we, and we've probably, um, probably all had those times in life where we'd wished or prayed for a miracle of, of that nature. You know, there's a multitude of reasons why we ask God for that. You know, Sometimes it's an illness of a loved one. Maybe pain and suffering in our lives or lives that are close to us. A feeling that sometimes is, life's not fair, you know, and and we ask God to make it right. We find ourselves crying out for God to perform a miracle in those situations. And sometimes selfishly, sometimes sincerely. And maybe some of us have truly witnessed a miracle come true. Something that we can't explain with our words to anybody around us. Something that we had no logical explanation other than God must have granted it. But think of this, what would it be like to be in the presence of of a true miracle, just like we read? One that you could only explain through the power of God. I, I think that would be incredible. It would truly be a moment that you would never forget and that... You couldn't stop talking about it for long into your future. You see, Peter, in this passage, was the tool that God used to spread his gospel message by some incredible, miraculous ways. But in order to truly understand what's happening here, I think we need to look back in the past a bit to see why these two stories are significant. Why Luke chose to write these into the book of Acts. You see, this passage opens up by sharing that Peter was traveling um, here and there among them all, hinting that Peter must have been traveling to search out other believers um, that, that had been scattered beyond Jerusalem. But it isn't, isn't it interesting that Peter is the person that's getting this chance? I mean, this is the same Peter, the same disciple that told Jesus at the Last Supper in Matthew 22 That even if all the other disciples fall away, he would not. It's also the same Peter that that while the crucifixion was happening, he was asked outright three times if he was one of those disciples. And, And what did Peter do? He denied it three times. But this is still the same Peter that even though he failed... Jesus promised to build the church on in Matthew 16, 18. So you see, Jesus was sent to open a way to have a relationship with God the Father. And through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, you and I are forgiven. Let me say that again. We are forgiven. See, Peter was a perfect example of God choosing to use a broken and imperfect man to carry out His gospel message to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. And it's here that we begin to see the message delivered to those who were not Jewish for the first time. You see, Lydda was actually the ends of the earth. That was part of that message in, in Acts eight, Peter was being faithful, finally, to live out the gospel The story that God did not intend to need, uh, that that God did not need perfect people for the message of salvation. He just needed faithful people. We see Peter end up in Lydda, which if he didn't know it, is found about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it's the meeting place and the intersection of, of the major highways back in that time. Between Egypt and Syria and even the coast, it was an administrative district. And at the time, it had a large... Jewish population, but it also had a large a variety of ethnic population. And it was a perfect place for another missionary ministry to strengthen the growing body of believers in a diverse makeup of God's chosen people, the Jews, and finally the Gentiles. One way that God chose to do this was through miracles. Moments that astounded those who saw what happened and offered no other explanation other than it had to be the power of God. Peter, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, is led into two different situations here in Acts 9 that would, again, add to the number of believers that would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Aeneas was a man that had been suffering from a pretty tough ailment. The Scripture tells us that Aeneas had been paralyzed for the last eight years. It doesn't tell us what led him to that. It doesn't tell us how much of his body was affected by the condition. Uh, But really, the details aren't important. But what is important is that it seems like the locals in Lydda all knew of the ailment that he had, and they all knew that there was no cure for it. He was obviously in a very public place where people saw him all the time, and to put it short... Everybody knew, or at least many knew, that man who sat on that mat and couldn't move. But you see, God likes situations like that to prove his power. He uses a broken and imperfect man, Peter, to walk up to Aeneas and tell him that Jesus Christ had healed him. And that he should get up and make his bed. In other words, he he pretty much went up to to Aeneas and said, Hey, get up, pack up, and go do what you want to do. And to everybody's surprise, Aeneas obeyed immediately. Luke didn't write anything else about Aeneas' faith. He didn't say if he was a believer or not. But Peter knew that God had chosen this man to be healed. And Peter as a vessel of Jesus Christ's power, carried out what God told him to do. Scripture tells us that through that miracle, all in that town of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord as a result of what they saw. And then you see that word seems to travel fast and it's no surprise that it did when you see something like that because you don't see that every day. And that's something worth talking about. Peter did not boast, he didn't brag, he didn't take credit for what God had did for this man. He simply told Aeneas, Jesus has healed you, not I. And when people heard and saw that, it was, it was probably easier to understand exactly who Jesus was. The power that they had and why they should believe. But God doesn't stop there with Peter. I mean, when you're on a roll, why slow down, right? So in verse 36, Luke tells us of a woman who is full of good works and acts of charity who lives in Joppa. It's a neighboring town to Lydda, a believer and a disciple of Jesus named Tabitha, which was translated to Dorcas. And we find out as we continue to read the following verses that she's a very skilled seamstress. And with that skill, she provides for the needs of those people in that area. Making clothes that she gives to charity, scarves, whatever needed to be made, she could do it. And there's no doubt that she was a valued individual. Because of Christ, she followed the example of the church that was set early in the book of Acts and gives of her resources and gives gifts to those who need it. She understands the purpose of the gospel and because of that, she loves on people with all that God has gifted her with. Sadly, and rather suddenly, we, we read that she falls ill and dies. Of what, we don't know, but, but obviously the loss of her life impacts the community tragically. It's felt by many people around her, and the, and the hurting is evident, though, The mourners surround her body as they prepare her in the Jewish tradition for burial. But it also seems like the people who were mourning her weren't quite quite ready to give up on this woman that meant so much to them. We, We see in verse 38 here that the disciples who were there sent two men to find Peter, asking him and urging him to come fix the problem, if you will. Most likely, these people had heard of what Peter had done for Aeneas and figured that it was worth a shot to see if Peter could come help their deceased friend, Dorcas. But you guys, the, the key word there is deceased. You see, she was dead. <laughs> Scripture's pretty clear on that. She was not breathing, she had not been breathing for at least a day. In the Jewish tradition, I looked this up. When, when somebody dies, it's a, it's a rather long ceremony before that body's buried. And it says that she was washed and cleaned. And that's at least a 24-hour process of, of taking care of the body and, and reading Scripture over it as it's traditionally washed. And then you have to put it in this room with the feet facing the door. It's a very, very ceremonial event. And she's been dead through all of this. She wasn't just passed out. She wasn't in a, a coma or simply unresponsive. Verse 37 tells us that she fell ill and she died. That was it. And I think it's funny in our human understanding or, or, or view of this situation, if you were comparing the two situations of healing a paralyzed man and then seeing this, this woman Dorcas who is dead, I think th- this, this potential miracle is on a whole nother level, right? I mean, the first miracle, the guy was still alive. But now we're talking about bringing somebody back from the dead? It wasn't like it had just happened minutes ago either. She was ready for burial. But again, I know that's where God wants to be sometimes. A position of wow and amazement is what he wants in order to get his message across. And that's just what he did through Peter. You see, when Peter arrived, people were sharing with him what Dorcas meant to them. He probably heard some amazing stories and he probably saw the tears and he knew pretty quick the character of this woman. Scripture tells us that the mourners shared with Peter what Dorcas had made them. They wanted Peter to know that she was an amazing woman of God, and if anybody deserved to live longer, it was her. Her life was over too quick, in their opinion. In true humility, Peter cleared the room. You see, he didn't want anybody ooing and awing about what God was going to do through him. He didn't want anybody getting the wrong idea that that this was Peter's power, not God's. He wanted to be a vessel again, undistracted, for God to use. Verse 40 says that Peter, in worship and in faith, knelt down and prayed. Then in full faith of the power of God, you see, he knew what God could do. he spoke and told Dorcas to rise. And without hesitation, Scripture says her eyes opened. Can you imagine being there? Seeing that? How would you explain that? He helped her up. And then he walked her out and delivered her to those who were mourning. And the people were again in a position where they couldn't deny the existence and the power of Jesus Christ. And because of a miracle of this caliber, Scripture says, many more believed in Jesus that day. And in the very next verse, Peter continues to challenge the cultural norms as God leads him to stay with the home of a tanner named Simon. A person who in Jewish culture <coughs> was considered unclean because he worked with the skins of dead animals and in most most cases tanners couldn't live no longer or no no closer than 25 yards to town. And yet Peter for the sake of the gospel stays in this house with this man for many days. You see, because of the new covenant and his faith in Jesus Christ, he understood that the message was for all. And all were loved by God. Therefore, he could set aside the cultural norms and not worry about what people think and just be there. You see, all this is a good lesson in the history of the church and and the book of Acts and what Christ did through the hands of Peter, but... But I'm, I'm questioning, where does this leave us today? You know, what are we to take away from this passage? What are we to put into action as a result of this teaching, you guys? Because too often we hear things like this and we walk out that door and nothing's changed. So what is God telling us to do today? Well, I think there's a few things that we need to initiate in our lives as a result of what Peter did here. First, I think we need to be prepared to do the unexpected. In <laughs> you know, The past few weeks, Pastor Joy and Pastor Matt have talked about the unlikely. Those people in our lives that you never would think that would change. Those people in our lives that you would never expect to turn, turn towards Christ. Those people in our lives that we often won't take the time out of our day to share Christ with because, well, we don't think they would ever change. And yet we saw God is more powerful than the limitations we put on Him. He will do the impossible, and it's not our job to question it. It's our job to faithfully follow as He delivers and calls upon us to do that. Just as Peter did in these few short verses. We need need to be ready to listen intently to the Holy Spirit and be asking what we should be doing. Peter left the comfort of the Jewish heartland. He ventured out to the Gentiles and sought those who didn't know the story of Jesus Christ. He healed without prejudice as God told him to do. He stayed where God told him to despite what others might have thought. He was more concerned with what God was asking of him than what others thought of him. Did you hear that? We need to be more concerned with what God would ask of us than what others would think of us. If that means we're pushed outside of the cultural acceptance, because we chose to do what God asked us to do, praise the Lord that we are set apart in that manner. The second thing that I think we need to do is we need to live a faith-led life. Expect the unexpected and live a faith-led life. We need to be in constant communion with God the Father and be actively and intentionally asking Him this question What do you want me to do? Not what can you do for me. What do you want me to do? Do you daily pray that? Do you daily ask God what you could be doing for Him? I don't. I should. Too often, we as earthly humans, we think we know what's best, right? We know the next move. We have it all figured out, planned out, and it's perfect. Wrong. Look at the life of Paul. Before his conversion, he thought he was doing what was perfect, what was right, what was good. And then God radically changed him. And after his conversion, he did whatever God called him to do. There was an argument or an attempt to reason himself out of the task. He obeyed and did what God told him to do, no matter what the consequence. Are we like that? Peter, again, a man who at one time denounced Jesus three times. Jesus was was his best friend and he tried to avoid the consequence of being a disciple. But he reconciled with his Savior and then finally did whatever Christ called him to do. He used the power of his faith, faithfully, to proclaim the name of Jesus boldly wherever he went. And the events in his ministry led many people to Christ as a result of his boldness and faith and his obedience to what God was calling him to do. Peter knew what God was and what God could do with him. God would even do the impossible through Peter. But you know what? Peter prayed confidently for that. When he knelt down by this dead woman, he didn't pray a prayer of, well, God, I hope you can do this. He prayed that this woman would live confidently. Praying with confidence and without selfishness will lead to big, unexplainable answers of prayer. Even now, you guys. At a missions conference in 1986, over 30 years ago, Stuart Briscoe, who was a well-known pastor and author Said this All that's being done in evangelical Christianity in America can be done with good equipment, modern media, and a few gifted men. Very little is happening in the church that is explainable solely on the basis of God's activity and authority. Is our church moving because we've mastered a way to impress people? Or is our church moving because we are stepping out of the way and letting Christ have center stage? It's not just in the church that's in our lives. A faith-led life would look to Christ in all things that we do and say and know that He will answer in His own way and timing. Third. We need to remember that God does not need us to do what he wants to accomplish. Amen? But yet, he chooses broken people to do his work. Who are we that we deserve that? That the creator of the universe will look at you and I and see somebody he could use. Who does that? He does. Certainly. Again, we've seen God do big things with some broken people. An entire entire town turned their lives to Christ once God dealt with Jonah and his disobedience. And he took Paul through a dramatic experience and turned him into one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament, writing many of the books of our Bible. Peter denied him, reconciled, and became bold as an example of Jesus Christ. And what about King David? Let's look back a little older, King David and Bathsheba. The sin that happened there, God forgave him and continued to use him in credible ways. And from the line of David came Jesus, the Savior for us all. You see, there are countless people through Scripture that God chooses to use for His glory. So are you good enough to be used by God? Maybe you're thinking about that pile of junk that you've done in your life that makes you a horrible candidate for God's work, right? The stuff that you can't stop getting caught up in even now. The sins that are in your past that you can't look past. The things that in your mind keep you from admitting, for keep you from admitting that you're good enough to be used. Guess what? God can and will forgive that all. God will look past it. And if he can do that, we need to do that for ourselves too. Let it go. Be forgiven. Understand what that means and change. And know that you are valued by our Father and he is wanting you to be a part of his plan. It's a true privilege I want to close with this story of a modern day miracle because I think we sit here and go, this is neat and I wish I would have seen that but it doesn't happen in these days and I'm telling you it does. But I think we forget to open our eyes. Evangelist Louis Palau answered the phone in Ecuador one day. On the other end, a woman requested an appointment with him the next morning at 9.30. He had no idea that she was the secretary of the Communist Party in Ecuador. She arrived promptly the next day, accompanied by two bodyguards, which stood outside. After looking around for hidden recording devices, the woman sat down and without introduction, for 20 minutes poured out a barrage of verbal abuse Attacking the government, Christianity, Mr. Palau's character and ministry. At first, Mr. Palau was speechless. He had never seen such hatred unleashed from anyone. When the woman finally paused for a moment, Palau snatched the silence and asked, Madam, is there anything I can do for you? How can I help you? after just taking a verbal beating, I would have thought the man would have walked out. But you can see that Luis led a faith-led life. He knew God was bigger. What can I do for you? How can I help you? She stared at him and then began to sob uncontrollably. Finally, when she was composed enough to speak, she said, you know... In the 38 years that I have lived, you are the first person who has ever asked if you could help me. Palau asked her her name, and her face instantly hardened again. Why do you want to know? And he said, Well, you've said a lot of things here, and I don't even know you. So she gave him her name Maria Benita Perez. And for three hours, she poured out her life story, which reeked of sin and guilt. Finally, she she paused and asked Palau, Suppose there is a God, pretend there is a God, and I'm not saying there is. Do you think he would receive a woman like me? Look, Maria, Palau replied. Don't worry about what I think. He's stepping out of the way. Look at what God says. And Luis opened his Bible and turned it so she could see. But I don't believe in the Bible. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're supposing that there is a God, right? Let's suppose the Bible is his word listen to what god says and in hebrews 10:17 he read to her their sins and lawless acts i will remember no more She went on to tell him more of her sins. She had stabbed a man who later committed suicide. She had led riots where people had been killed. She had been married three times, committed adultery numerous times, done all sorts of terrible things. And each time she she told him of one of her past sins, 17 times in all, Palau responded by quoting Scripture, God's word, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Louise stepped out of the way and gave God center stage. Finally, after a long silence, she said softly, If He could forgive me and change me, it would be the greatest miracle in the world. Within 10 minutes, Palau witnessed that miracle as she confessed her sins. Asked God's forgiveness and received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. A miracle. God saving a sinner, whether a notorious sinner or a a more respectable sinner, is always a miracle, no less than His healing a paralyzed man or raising a man or a woman to life. He wants us to bring that miraculous cure to sinners we meet. We need to remember that the gospel is nothing less than the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. We need to begin to live our lives in a very different manner, you guys. We need to know that we're imperfect, but we're forgiven. We need to know that God is big enough to do what He wants to do, And we need to be willing to step past the boundaries in our lives and our culture and be bold enough to do the tasks that others will not. We need to be willing to live and lead faith-led lives. Lives that are centered around the will of Jesus Christ. Lives that will end with the greeting hear our savior speak the words well done good and faithful servant let's pray